open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 4 this morning as we continue. Hosea chapter 4 this morning. We want to finish what we began last week. Just to recap, as you're turning in your Bibles to that text where we had come from, God is in the process in Hosea chapter 4 of issuing his indictment against the nation of Israel. Uh, He has condemned them for their numerous and various sins. He has explained for us the condition, the spiritual condition of the nation uh, there in verses 1 down through verses 5. He has explained to us what he is going to begin to do to them as a result of their sin. If you remember last week as we began, we said that the most difficult thing that we've to do as believers in the good news and the great commission work of the gospel is to first share with people the bad news, to help them understand why they need the good news, and then to help them understand the overwhelming good news of Jesus Christ and what He has come to do in their stead and for them. And so we are at that position in the life of the nation of Israel in Hosea, where God is delivering the bad news. And as I was working ahead for next week, this past week, I couldn't help but just be absolutely overwhelmed with the good news, the grace of God, the mercy of God, as He presents it in chapter 6. And so we are moving towards that point. And so if you're joining us halfway through, uh, understand that is the context in which we are approaching uh, this book that we are just working our way through chronologically and book by book, chapter by chapter, and we're understanding what God is doing in the life of the nation of Israel. Out of respect for the reading of God's Word, would you join me in standing, please, as we read God's Word? The Word of the Lord says in Hosea 4, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness. Remember, we said this is truth. There is no truth, nor is there kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. And you remember the language in the Hebrew literally has this as one murder attached to the next so that there's no break. It is just murder attached to murder. It's a horrible scenario that they were living in. So bad is sin, so overwhelming is sin's effect, he says in verse 3, that the land mourns and everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beast of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea disappear. Sin and the fall has totally affected everything. Verse 4, yet let no one find fault with God. And let none offer reproof. Your people are like those who contend with the priest. So you will stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night. Remember, brothers and sisters, the significance of this. The priest was that spiritual office God had given to the nation so that the people had a representative before God. That was the priest. The prophet was that office given by God, so that God was represented to the people. And now both are on difficult times. Both have stumbled and failed. 
He says, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night and I will destroy your mother. That is the entire nation. Now for our text this morning, beginning in verse six, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they multiply, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity. And it will be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat, but not have enough. They will play the harlot, but not increase because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. Harlotry, wine and new wine take away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idol and their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray and they have played the harlot departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of mountains and burn incense on the hills under the oak, poplar and terebinth because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot or your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifice with temple prostitutes so that the people without understanding are ruined. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty. Also, do not go to Gilgal or go up to beth and take the oath as the Lord lives." Since Israel is stubborn like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their liquor is gone. They play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. The wind wraps them in its wings and they will be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Let's pray. Father, it's a difficult thing but also necessary, Father, to understand the weight of our sin. To understand, Father, the propensity that we possess in our heart, the desire we have for rebellion against You. Father, how wise, how righteous, how holy You are. Father, we desperately need You, and yet our hearts would seek to pull us away from You. Father, as we discussed at 10 o'clock this morning, there is no doubt that You have addressed the evil of all evils in the first commandment. We should have no other gods before You, Father, because that is our greatest struggle. Father, we are idolaters by nature. We confess that this morning. We confess our weakness. We confess our fallen love for sin in our natural state. Father, we are so grateful that You have shown us our sin. Father, there is grace in this condemnation. There is grace in Your chastisement of sin that we would see it, that we would own it, and that we would flee to Christ, who is our perfect righteousness, our perfect sacrifice. Father, as you have demonstrated your mercy and your love and your grace to Israel, so now convince us in our heart also that you have condemned our sin, but you have provided a precious remedy in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, we're thankful that you came and you lived the perfect life that we cannot live. And that you died a death to please your Father that we could not die. And now by your righteousness... 
You have exchanged our guilt and our fear and our sin for Your absolute perfection and righteousness and right standing before the Father. How we praise You for that. God, help us to see redemption in Your Word this morning. May we see You high and lifted up as a God who will not wink at sin, but has provided a way of escape. Father, we ask that Your Holy Spirit would come and work in us. We can't, Father. We can't convince ourselves of our spiritual need. We certainly cannot apply the remedy for change. Only the work of the Spirit can do that. And so, Father, we plead for Your Spirit to come and apply Your Word to our hearts this morning. Be exalted, be magnified, we pray through the preaching of Your Word now. Give us listening grace and speaking grace. We pray in the name and by the finished work of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. God now begins, I think, what is the heart and the real travesty in the life of Israel as a nation. And brothers and sisters, let us take it to heart what God says to them beginning in verse 6 as God now deals with the very crux of the matter, and that is this. He says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. One of the most overlooked points in the redemptive history of the Bible, and we need to bear in mind that the Bible is a story of God's redeeming actions towards men. That everything that God has done in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation points us to the redeeming work of God on behalf of sinners. It is a story of redemption. And yet one of the most overlooked points for us this morning and one we need to guard ourselves against buying into is the role of the law. We, we need to understand that one of the primary reasons God gave the law was ultimately for redemption. We read the Apostle Paul's words and the Apostle Paul says, how is it that I came to know sin? I came to know sin by the law. And if I had never come to know sin, then I would have never understood my need for Christ. And so Paul repeatedly uh, reinforces the idea that the law drives us to Jesus. The guilt that the law lays on us drives us to Jesus. Nicole and I were discussing that at length this week as we have a family member who um, we, we, we were now receiving phone calls or, or, or I should say text messages and emails asking for our intervention because of the severe nature of, of depression that has come over this family member. And we, we were sitting there at the table one day at lunch and, and we were trying to grasp what it is in this individual's life that is causing so much emotional trauma. And we had to reduce it down to this one thing. God designed our guilt. He designed the law 
to so lay a heavy burden upon us that, that it is absolutely unbearable apart from Jesus Christ. Guilt is grace in that case. God, through the guilt that the law brings us, brings us to the end of ourselves so that we might turn to Him. And we understand this part of the law. We understand what Paul says. We agree with that. But we also need to understand this morning that it was not only the law that served an evangelistic purpose, it was the people to whom the law was given that God desired to play a part in redemptive history. And that is the nation of Israel. Israel was given the law explicitly so according to Deuteronomy. So that in living out the law of God, in obeying God, in, in walking in worship with Him, the nations, the pagan idolatrous nations around Israel would look at them, would look at their law, and they would say, who has a nation with God so near as them? Israel was to be God's shining evangelist among the nations. They were to be the ones who drove people and drew people to a knowledge of God. And yet God says that his condemnation of Israel in Hosea chapter 4 is this. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because of their sin, they have experienced an ultimate lapse, an ultimate absence of the knowledge of God. How then could they fulfill their role as God's beacon of hope? How could they point people to God? In fact, if you read on down to verse 6, look at the text. God says this, I will reject you from being my priest. You're done. You, you can't represent me anymore. You're gone. I'm going to set you aside. Now let's discuss what this means. What does it mean my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge? Does this mean they didn't know who God was? No, absolutely not. They knew who God was. Remember, their, 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 their great condemnation was not that they had completely left God for the worship of Baal. They left the worship of God only and tried to combine the sexual nature of the worship of the Baals with the worship of Yahweh. And God says, no, no, no. You don't do that. You cannot mix the worship of me with the worship of the, the idols around you. They knew who God was. They had a correct head knowledge of who God was. But what the word means is that they left a knowledge, a practical fleshing out of living and walking according to what they knew to be true about God. Notice what the text says says they're destroyed for lack of knowledge. And we might look at that and go, oh, those poor people, they didn't know. How unjust of God to condemn them. No, 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 no. They knew. God was right in His condemnation of them. They simply chose, look at the next phrase, they have rejected knowledge. They knew how to live. They knew what God expected and they chose not to please God. In other words, they chose to violate the worship of God only by combining it with all of the 
idolatrous worship around them. And as a result of that, God looks at them, and I, I shudder to think, brothers and sisters, that this would ever be uttered to us. I will reject you from being my priest. It's as if for us who are more familiar with New Testament language, God were to look at us and He would say to us, because of your willful condition, your willful rejection of me, I am going to bar you from the great privilege of carrying out the Great Commission. You say you're concerned about the souls of people. You say you're concerned about the worship of God. But because of your rejection of me, oh, you have the head knowledge, but you don't have the practical life submission to my ways. You will not be able to represent me. What a, what a tragic statement. And we find this to be true as God continues on, don't we? In the history of redemption, in the history of Israel, uh, that role that was God intended in the beginning, that Israel would be His chosen representative, has now been set aside and God had to bring the Gentiles in. And God brings the Gentiles in and the Gentiles then become the provocation by which Israel actually turns back to the Messiah. They become jealous of God's using them instead of us. God says, you're not going to be my priest. I can't use a vessel who chooses to reject my ways. God says, I also will forget your children. The ramifications of their sin were not one-dimensional, not one generation. But on and on, the consequences of their rebellion against God would continue to be felt. How tragic that our lack of love for God, our rejection of His ways, can lead to our uselessness in His hand. Oh, what pain there is to miss that blessing. To miss the opportunity to be a channel through which God deals with the matter of eternity in the souls of those around us. In verses 7 and following, we begin to see the perversion of the blessing that God had given them. Look in your Bibles. Hosea goes on and he begins to proclaim, The more they multiply, the more they sinned against me. And I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity. And it will be like people, like priests, so I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat, but not have enough. They will play the harlot, but not increase, because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. Israel, without question, in the history of the world, has been the recipient of unbefore known and Unbefore seen, unspeakable blessings. God had, had, had so blessed these people. But Luke chapter 12, verse 48 tells us that with great blessing comes greater responsibility. Jesus says in Luke 12, 48, For whomsoever much is given, much is required. 
Now let's think about this for a moment together this morning. To the people of Israel were given the covenants of God. We go back to Genesis chapter 12 and we read that God promises to Abraham, from you will come uh, numberless descendants. So much so that the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky won't, won't be able to compare with your offspring. Abraham, I'm going to make you a blessed man, and your descendants, and, and, and their multiplication is going to be a sign of your blessing. Abraham, I'll make a covenant with you. It was to the people of Israel that God gave the law, that they might know God through the law. It was to the people of Israel that God gave divine protection as they moved into the land of Israel, and, and they, they went and they lived in houses they didn't build. And they ate from crops they didn't plant. And they experienced all of the blessings of God. And yet they began to pervert the things that God had given them. Look what he says. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. Part of God's covenant with them was this idea of multiplication. And the more they multiplied, the more they prospered in that way, the more perverted they became. Israel was a very wealthy and powerful nation. They had Solomon, who had been their forefather, and his legacy of materialism, his legacy of wealth, continued on even into Hosea's day. But you know, like Solomon, the more he increased, the more they increased, the further from God they became. The more Solomon got, the more he wanted, the more he wanted, the more he was willing to do to compromise, to get it. I'll marry women from other nations who don't know Jehovah. I will bring other gods with them into my family. And Israel followed suit like father, like son. Their material blessing, their propagation biologically, would soon become the laughing stock of their enemies. They would make treaties with the Assyrians. This, this blows my mind. Here is the nation that God has promised all of these blessings to. And because of their corruption and the, the downward spiral, spiral of the nation, and because when you're not walking with God, you're walking in the fear of man, they begin to fear the Assyrians. And so what do they do? Instead of repenting and turning back to Yahweh, who had parted the Red Sea for them, who had given the law to them, who had given them all the blessings, they turned to a man, an earthly king. And they made a covenant, they made a treaty that, that he would take care of them. What an insult, what a perversion of God's blessing that what only God can do, they now turn to a pagan king and say, only you can save us. They make treaty with him. By the way, he would eventually renege on that and turn on them and destroy them, lead them away captive. Everything that God had given them, brothers and sisters, everything that God has given us, should lead us back to Him. But because of our fallen sinful tendencies, we tend to make idols. We tend to worship the things that are given rather than the God who gives them. 
We need to be aware of that, that any of our blessings can, like Israel, very easily become an idol. We need to be all the more watchful of blessing than of deprivation. Blessings of any kind become a potential idol. We find not only did they abuse the blessings that God gave them, look what he says in verse 8. They take part in abusive relationships. The priests now feed on the sin of the people. They direct their desire toward their iniquity. The, the priests have become so perverted, so fallen along with the people that they are actually using the people to further their own sinful lifestyles. The, people, the priests are no different. No, no longer can they stand as the representative of the people before God. That's a problem. That's a problem. When you are dependent upon a man to offer sacrifice before God in order that God would be pleased with you, and now that priest can no longer stand in that office, you have a serious dilemma on your hands. There is no way now for you to be reconciled to God. The priests are as corrupt as you are. In the past, the priests had been permitted to, you remember, eat portions of certain sacrifices. God said after you offered the sacrifice, you were allowed in a prescribed manner in which they could use some of that meat to sustain their physical life. And look what the text says. Hosea says this. Now they don't feed on that any longer. They actually feed on the sin that the sacrifice was given to atone for. No longer are the people holy because the priests themselves have indulged in the sin instead of the sacrifice. They have no hope. The priests don't. The people don't. No longer do the people have access to God by consecrated men who originally were given as a blessing. But look at the emptiness that follows. The priests are going to eat, but they will never have enough. The people are going to eat, but they'll never be satisfied. They will play the harlot, but they will not increase. This is a, no doubt a reference to the uh, the immoral cult of the Baals with the temple prostitutes. God says, look, I gave you physical productivity, biological productivity as a blessing. And now you're going to go and use the physical means by which that happens with the temple prostitutes. And I'm going to absolutely make you barren. You're going to go and you're going to indulge in procreative acts, but it won't yield any children. I'm going to take away the joy of bearing future generations from you. Can you imagine an entire nation that had so walked away from the ways of God that God says, I'm going to take away one of the most basic joys of humanity, children. You're going to go and you're going to live the lifestyle, but you'll bear none of the fruit. They would never have enough. What an empty life. But then look at the stupidity that they fall into. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. In other words, that they became people who were uh, so intoxicated and so addicted to mind-altering 
things that they they couldn't think straight. They, they were depraved, that they had no understanding because of both the physical acts that they were engaged in as well as the abuse of the wine and the new wine. God says it's removed their judgment. By the way, physical immorality has a chemical reaction in the human brain that scientists have now discovered that can literally, outside of the bounds of God for natural human desires, outside of those parameters, can actually cause chemical problems in the brain. It can literally make you go crazy. One of the one of the most tragic things that I've watched in my life, when I was in seminary, worked with uh, about 35 people in our office and had a very attractive young girl that, that they hired. It's a very bubbly personality. And then all of a sudden, one day, she didn't show up for work. That's odd. Nobody thought anything of it. Day two, she didn't show up for work. Day three, didn't show up for work. So the managers began to call to find out where she was. She hadn't called in to take a sick day, hadn't called in to take vacation. After searching for a week or two, they finally found her in a mental institution because of the number of immoral affairs that she was carrying on at one time. She literally went crazy. She, she lost her ability to, to grasp reality. And it was a tragic thing to watch her suffer such a terrible demise. But look at what God says. is a harlotry. This, this lifestyle of profligate living takes away understanding, as does drunkenness. And notice verse 12. Notice what verse 12 says. They go and they consult their wooden idol. Got a little block of wood sitting in their house, and instead of praying to Yahweh who has spoken, instead of praying to the God who who, who breathes out and fire and smoke and, and accomplishes all these things in their history, they go and they talk to a piece of wood. And their diviners won this piece of equipment used in, in, in occultic activity. They go and they begin to inquire of that. So dull and so drunk were the people with their spiritual adultery that their dull minds actually came to the point of worshiping wood. And we, we look at that and we say, this is crazy. I mean, we would never do that, right? Isaiah 44 says this, no one recalls. Nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I've burned half of it, talking about these wooden idols. I burned half of it for fire, and I've also baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I eat it. Then I make the rest of the wood, the, uh, make the rest of it into an abomination, and I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself, nor say, Is there not? A lie in my right hand? These people had become so depraved, they literally could not even grasp the stupidity of praying to a block of wood. A spirit of harlotry, a spirit of spiritual rebellion and infidelity to Jehovah had led them astray. And they played the harlot departing from their God. 
He says in verse 13, they offer sacrifice on the top of mountains and burn incense on the hills. Under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is pleasant. Now, this is seems to be a pattern in human nature. I, I've joked with people over time. Why is it that when you go to the most beautiful places on planet Earth, you find some of the strangest people? You go to the mountains, and there's inevitably some new age gathering there. Uh, you, you, you go to Colorado, you go to, to Northern California, you go to these places that are just absolutely breathtaking and inevitably they're some of the most godless, liberal places on the earth. It's no different than Hosea's day. They see these beautiful places, the children of Israel run up to them, and they begin to offer sacrifice to idols. Why? Their spiritual stupidity. Notice that the places that they ought to be going to worship God, notice the, the places that they ought to be looking up and saying, what a creator. They're building altars to worship idols in those places. It, it, it defies human logic. It defies reason. But that's what happens when you reject the knowledge of God. It's Romans 1 being lived out in Hosea 4. They were oblivious to the insult that God was laying at their feet. But now the real travesty in their home begins to become evident. He says this, your daughters play the harlot. God is specifically dealing with the men of the nation now. And he says, your daughters play the harlot, your brides commit adultery. God lays the responsibility, men, squarely at the feet of male leadership in Israel. Notice what he goes on to say, I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot or your brides when they commit adultery. They're going to be part of it. They're going to reap the consequences of it. The women, while individually guilty would not be held corporately as the cause of Israel's woe. That would be the fault of the men. God says, men, you failed. You failed to be the spiritual leaders in your homes. You failed to be the spiritual leaders in the nation. And because of this, your wives and your daughters go out and they do things that ought not to be done. And I'm not going to hold them corporately responsible. It's your fault. Yes, individually, they're still responsible for their actions, but men, it should not have happened on your watch. God would hold the fathers and the husbands responsible for the behavior of their wives and daughters. Perhaps a permissive society not unlike ours. A promiscuous society that history has not often seen so blatantly repeated, was occurring in Israel. Go up to the temple to worship your little wooden idols, and all of a sudden the wives and the daughters are engaged in all manner of immoral activity. And men, it fell on the husbands. It fell on the fathers. 
for not leading them in the ways and the understanding of God. Notice what he says. The men themselves go apart with harlots. They offer sacrifices with the temple prostitutes. So the people without understanding are ruined. God's addressing the leadership. He's addressing the idea of knowledge back to verse 6. It's not just general knowledge. It is a knowledge of God. The way, brothers and sisters, that we prevent this from becoming our condemnation is not by legislating morality. It's not through pure external forms. It is by leading people to a knowledge of God that transformed them from the inside out. And this is what they had failed to do. They had failed to go to God. They had failed to attach with intentionality their wives and their children to Yahweh, to Jehovah, to the God who had redeemed them over and over again and who had graciously spoken to them. They failed to do that. And yet Israel seems to be largely oblivious even to the condemnation. And God says to Judah, the southern two tribes, He says to them, listen, beginning in verse 10, Though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty. Judah, listen up. Don't do what your cousins in the north are doing. Wake up and learn the lesson. Look at what they were doing. One of the things Judah was to observe is not to go to the places where they had set up pagan worship at Gilgal or Beth-Avon and take the oath like Israel did. Israel is still, if you can imagine this, Israel is going into the temple of Baal, into a prostitution ring, and they are saying things like this, as the Lord lives... They are attaching God's holy name to the absolute defilement and destruction of the law of God. First commandment's gone. Don't worship any other God. Second commandment's gone. Don't make any graven images. Third commandment's gone. They're blaspheming the name of God, attaching Him to things that do not represent His character. They're no longer, the family unit is decayed. There's no proper relationship in the home. We understand that there was theft and murder and adultery. You name it, the Ten Commandments were absolutely being blown apart. And God says, Judah, you better wake up before it's too late. Don't go and do what they've done. We need to wake up. And say, what is it? What can we learn from this portion of redemptive history? We can learn that the love of God and the pursuit of God must trump everything. That we must pursue God. Pursue a knowledge of God that yields itself in a practical fleshing out of a life that reflects Him. If we don't, if we don't take 
God's warning to heart? If we don't listen to the law of God, if we don't own our sin, then redemption is out the window for us. So stubborn was Israel in her sin that she couldn't be brought into the fold. That's his point. She's like a stubborn heifer. So she would be turned out into the field, into the open fields. And in a grand culture, we don't, none of us, except maybe Josh, understand what it's like to, to care for herds. You turn a herd out, you turn calves out, you turn sheep out into the wilderness without protection. They won't be there very long. You don't care for them. You don't nurture them. God says, that's what I'm going to do to Israel. I'm going to turn them out into the field. I can't, I can't corral them. I can't pasture them. So I'm going to turn them out. In verses 17 through 19, God issues His statement, His wrath of abandonment. And God says this, I'm going to put them in a pasture I'm just going to leave them alone. I'm going to let them have what they want. I'll let them go their own way. I'm not going to intervene. Like Ephraim has joined idols, let him alone. Their liquor gone. They play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. The wind wraps them in its wings and they will be ashamed because of their sacrifices. God just says, fine. That's the way you want it. That's the way you can have it. I'm not going to intervene. I'm going to withdraw my hand of protection, my hand of blessing off of you for a little while. And I'm going to let you have your way. This is Romans 1 all over again. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul says that though they knew God, they rejected Him. What could be clearly known and understood about God, they rejected. Rejection after rejection after rejection, God finally says, enough. Enough. No more conviction. No more work. That's what you want. That's what you can have. And he turns them over to a reprobate mind. The wind, look at verse 19. The wind over which none of us have ever had control, only God controls the wind. The wind wraps them up in its wings. God says, I'm going to let this wind, this thing over which you have no control, sweep you away. Has that thought ever occurred to you that we control a lot of things in this world, but one thing we don't control is the weather? In fact, that might be the only thing in our age of technology that we absolutely have no control over anymore. We can keep people alive on machines. We can do amazing things in the surgery rooms, but we can't make it rain. We can't change the course of the wind. Only God can do that. We are absolutely helpless. And God says, that's what I want you to feel. 
So I'm going to turn it over. I'm going to let sin have its full course in your life. Now, remember, if we go back to verses 11 and following, we see their stupidity. They were blind. They didn't even know they were sinful. They were so stupid, bound up in their sin. They were oblivious to it. But look at the last phrase of this chapter. And herein, brothers and sisters, we find gospel hope. They're going to wake up one day and they're going to be ashamed. How is that good news? They didn't even know they should be ashamed before. God is not done with His people. You see, it sounds like God has ultimately cast them off. He's just going to give them over to the wind. He's going to let their sin take it as far as it can. And He's done. If that were the case, they would never be ashamed. But God is not finished because God is loving and God is faithful. And one day he is going to wake that nation up and they are going to realize their rejection of God and they will come home. That's good news. God is not finished with them. God is faithful. And their, their shame over their sin is proof of a God who is faithful. If God was not faithful, He would have totally written them off. They would never feel shame. They would go on their way to hell for eternity with no other option. But God says, there's coming a day. And He doesn't elaborate at this point as to how it's going to happen. He just says, there is coming a day. They will be ashamed. The stupidity will be peeled back from their eyes. I will again convict them of sin. And by the Messiah, they will come home. They will repent. Well, it's not going to happen now. For now, I am going to deliver one crushing blow after another. So that in the end, I win. I win the hearts of my people. I win the affections of my people. I win the souls of my people. That is the God that we serve. A God who is so infinitely loving that He will judge. The world and the culture around us wants to imagine a God who is so loving that He refuses to judge. But the Bible presents a God who is so loving that He cannot help but judge. Stark difference. Here God judges so that in the end they will be ashamed. They will understand their sin. They will understand the mixture and the wrongness of their sacrifices and they'll come home. Praise God for a God who not only does loving things, but is himself love. The grace of conviction, the grace of chastisement, the grace of God's breaking so that He can win us back. It's a beautiful, terrible, powerful thing. May we live with this weighty idea and yet live with the hope of God's sovereign work as well and rest in His covenant faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we are sinners. 
We deserve hell. We deserve and we have earned your condemnation because of our sin. We have earned your wrath. And God, you are right to bestow it. But Father, we who have tasted of the life that is in Christ now turn to you and we fall on our knees and we say, not only are we confessing the rightness of your justice, the rightness of your judgment, we are confessing the beauty of your mercy. That we have not received what we deserved. And we have received things that we could never earn. Father, we praise you for both your justice and your mercy. We praise you for your wrath and for your grace. Father, knowing that, he, that in the end, through Christ, it leads us into eternal worship and adoration of Him and of you. Father, may we be faithful to tell people of a God who will not tolerate sin, who cannot tolerate sin, and yet is so loving that He has made a way of escape in Jesus. Father, may we as believers never forget the benefits of our salvation. May we never forget the immediate ceasing of our guilt before You. May we never forget, Father, that Your Gospel has brought to us a life that is free from fear. Father, let us remember our own breaking and our own conversion that we would passionately and compassionately take that message to others. That yes, they're in sin. That yes, they're under the judgment of God. But that Christ will save them. And that Christ is their answer from guilt, from fear, from pain caused by sin. Father, may we do all to glorify You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.